You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. Tonight, we start a new series called So You're a Christian, Now What? And uh, really, the, the impetus for a series like this, impetus, what a weird word, right? But the impetus for a series like this is to say that, hey, uh, sometimes the basics aren't always super clear. So like, I don't know if you're like me, but um, when I was eight years old, I prayed a prayer, you know, a prayer of salvation at, you know, with my mom at home, and then I got baptized, and then I think I met with a pastor, maybe, I don't know, can't really remember, it was when I was eight, but I, I distinctly remember, like, even when I was a teenager, looking back on that and being like, man, what, what did they tell me to do? Like, from that point forward, what was I supposed to do? Like, okay, now that you've prayed a prayer and you're saved, like, okay, you're good. Like, you're in, right? And so that's all you need to worry about. Um, but I, I know, and maybe you've come to realize this, there's a whole lot more to it than that. Like, you get saved and then you continue to grow, right? And you grow in this relationship. You grow in your understanding of things. And uh, the basics aren't always so clear to us about what, it, what, it, what do I do as a Christian and how do I live and what am I supposed to know now that I am one? And, um, you know, I think that's what the series is hopefully going to get at, to bring a, about some clarity about a few things. Um, and so tonight we're going to start with a really basic question of just, so you're a Christian, now what? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do now as a Christian? Like, is there, are there things that I'm supposed to do? I, I think it's pretty clear sometimes we think in our minds like, okay, a Christian is supposed to do these things, a Christian is not supposed to do these things, and maybe that's kind of clear to us, but if you were to ask the question, like, blanket statement, what are we supposed to do? I think we might just answer something like, well, we just do what the Bible says. Um, but then to that, you go, okay, like, which part? And then you go, okay, well, all of it. You're supposed to do all the Bible. And then maybe you get to that part where it's sacrificing animals, and you're like, mm, I don't know. I don't know if that's part of what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, and that's a fair point. You know, that's Old Testament, that's Old Testament law, and you look at that and say, this is what we're supposed to do, then maybe you wouldn't be necessarily on track with what you're actually supposed to do as a Christian. And you could then go, well, maybe I'm just supposed to be focusing on the New Testament. We'll just kind of forget about the Old Testament. We don't have to read that. We'll just read the New Testament and focus on what it says. But listen, God is not just the God of the New Testament. He's also the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God. And uh, what he calls us to do is essentially the same and Jesus didn't try to get rid of the Old Testament when he came. Actually, instead, he said he came to fulfill the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, not abolish them. So he came to live out the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So we can't really leave that behind. So what is it that God is calling us to do when you think about the whole thing, think about the Old Testament, New Testament? Like, what am I supposed to do now as a Christian on this side of Jesus coming? So we understand that on this side of Jesus coming, yes, there's things in the Old Testament that he has fulfilled, that we no longer have to do that those things. But what is it that we are supposed to do? What do we take from the Old Testament? What do we take from the New Testament? And Jesus is going to give us sort of a summary statement, something that's pretty simple uh, that we are all called to do as Christians that ultimately really is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament, the heart of the Old Testament, and also the New Testament. If we're going to live out what the Bible says, it's kind of a simple thing. And we're going to look at that tonight. And honestly, by the way, some of y'all might answer the question, what am I supposed to do as a Christian and say, well, I'm supposed to imitate Jesus. I'm supposed to be like him, right? And we know that that's also true. We're trying to be Christ-like. 
you know, I have a WWJD bracelet on, what would Jesus do, right? Anybody else? Okay, rep it proud, no, nobody? Okay, it was a fad a long time ago, and then it was another new fad, and I just have had it on for a long time. Anyway, so like, what would Jesus do? Well, he would do the things that he's about to say, right? And if we're looking to see how can I imitate Jesus, he would uh, give us these things that we're about to read. Okay, so he sums up all of what we'd be expected to do all, as, as we're trying to imitate him or trying to do what the Bible says in a few words, a few sentences here. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. In context, he is answering a question. This is near when he is going to be crucified. Not immediately right before, but it's near. And he's going to answer a question that is posed to him by a Pharisee and a lawyer, no less, of the Pharisees, somebody who would know the letter of the law of the Old Testament. And he's coming up to Jesus and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds this way, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You may have heard those verses before. They may be really familiar to you. Um, But it's simple, right? It's simple to love God and to love people. This is what he calls us to do. And it may seem like an oversimplification, but when he says this, he's not rejecting all the particulars of Scripture. He's not rejecting the particular things that we are called to do or called not to do as Christians. He's just saying all of them can be summed up in this, that if you miss this, you miss them all. He says, uh, you know, I think you can read this and say, more or less, if you go try to do all the particulars of the, you know, do these things, don't do these things, if you do all the things that you think you're supposed to do right, but you miss this, you miss it all. You can, you know, be like the Pharisees. He actually called out the Pharisees and some religious leaders of his day for being what he called whitewashed tombs. They look real good on the, ins- on the outside, but the inside, they're just dead. He said, these are people who honor me with their, li- with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And, you know, if you, if you get real good at doing what the Bible says, but you ignore or forget the fact that we were made to love the Lord our God with our whole selves and to love our neighbor as ourself, then we've missed it all. What we have is not Christianity, it's empty religion. And a lot of us get stuck kind of in that. We miss the fact that the foundation point for everything else is right here in this simple thing that he says. And and here's what we're really doing. What what I see we're doing when we're talking about this, we're not just discovering what we're supposed to do, but also the why. Like mixed in this is, is the why and the what of what we're doing. We're seeing here a purpose for us. That's what we're doing. We're discovering our purpose. What am I about now as a Christian? Because if I know my purpose the thing that is driving everything else that I do, then in whatever instances I find myself, in every place, every day, every moment, every circumstance, every arena of my life, I can live out that one purpose and still be doing what the Bible says, even though it feels like I'm just doing normal life. And so what is our purpose? What is the thing that drives us into everything that we do in a way that honors the Lord? Well, we're about to go on a journey into my brain, okay? Um, and I'm going to try to explain my own thought processes to you on how, where, where my mind goes on this, okay, and, and how this is all fleshed out. And it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be confusing for some of you. 
because some of you don't think like me, right? Uh, I was just trying to explain this to Eli. I said, sometimes what I think is a linear connection, like, yes, this to this. Other people are like, whoa, that is, that is not at all how I would have gotten there. But we're going to get where we're getting. And it's, it may be confusing. Listen, give me, give me a break. You might get lost along the way. I'm just a work in progress. So here's what we're going to do. The way that I've come, kind of come to uh, understand this purpose, almost like a summary statement in my own mind for the summary statement. Jesus already made it really simple, really clear. Love God with all yourself and, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the, the way that I've begun to, th- become, begun to think of the purpose in my own mind, like for me, is glorify God and point others to him. Glorify God and point others to him. As simple as that. So I'm a Christian. Now what? What am I supposed to do? That. Glorify God and point others to him. Kind of a twofold thing, right? Just like he's saying, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? I want to glorify God and point others to him. But then you could ask some, some questions of this. Like, what does it mean to glorify God? I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that before. Like, what does it mean to glorify God? What does even, like, glory mean? Like, what is glory exactly? You know, and is it something that I can give? You know, uh, I think we talk about it like sometimes, like, I want to give God glory in this. I want to give God glory in my schoolwork. I want to give God glory in my job with this sport or other thing that I do. Like. I want to give God glory. Well, what is glory? Like, can you give it? Can you give it to him? Does he need it? Because he already has. You got to think like, okay, if God is, is in the fullness of himself, he's like, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need glory from me. So like, what is, what's going on here when I say I want to give God glory? And here's some of the answers that I've come to to try to explain or think about this. I did like a search on what is glory? How do, how do we understand it? What's it connected to in the scriptures? And often glory just means like fame or recognition, like a recognizing of something that is worthwhile or praiseworthy in something or someone else, right? So to give glory isn't really like giving anything, but rather a recognizing of something. Like I recognize the praiseworthiness, in this case, of God, right? It can also mean a sense of like like brightness or radiance, okay, which is also not something that you see in and of itself, it's rather like the, the effect of something else. So you don't look at the sun and say, you know, that is radiant. You look at the rays and those rays are radiant, right? And it's the glory that is emanating from the sun. And in this case, it is, we are recognizing things about God that are coming to us from him. So I'm not necessarily able to give glory to God, but I can recognize God's glory and then respond to it. So I recognize God's glory and respond to it. I can, in a sense, see it, you know, see it in the, in the things that he has made, the things that he has done. I can feel it. I can begin to enjoy it, enjoy God's glory. I can sense the presence of it. I can praise him for it, and I can point other people to it, but I don't really give it. So for me to glorify God really is for me to stand in awe of him, to worship him, praise him, honor him, exalt his name before others, and exalt his name in my own heart. So for me to glorify him isn't necessarily to give him anything but praise, to exalt who he is and exalt who his name, 
his name in my own heart and before others. So it's, it's worship, really, is what it is, to glorify the Lord. And unfortunately, I think we misunderstand sometimes what worship is. You know, sometimes we just assume worship is what we just did a minute ago. We sang three songs. That was worship, right? And, uh, and sometimes we talk about worship like that. It's like something we come to do at a service, but then we go out and, you know, we might go to worship again next week, but until then, we don't think of our lives as worship. I don't think that's really what we're called to do or the way that we should think of worship. Like, yes, absolutely, what we do here and when we sing is worship. We are singing truths about God, you know, exalting his name. We are praising him, right? We're trying to encourage other people around us to recognize truth about God when we sing, but that's not all that worship is. Like, instead, rather, it shouldn't stop there. It should be like our whole lives become worship. If worship ultimately is this, and and here's the way I've come to understand it, that worship, if you were to try to define it, is essentially recognizing and responding to who he has revealed himself to be and for what he has done. Okay, so I've actually got that on the screen as well. It's just like a, an attempt to define what it means to glorify God or to worship him, to recognize and respond to who he has revealed himself to be and for what he's done. And yes, that's what we do when we sing, but absolutely our whole lives can be this. Our whole lives can be recognizing who he is, recognizing what he's done, and then responding to that. Our whole lives ought to be. And ultimately, I think that's what he's getting at when he's saying, like, I want you to love me with your whole self. I want you to love me with your heart, your soul, your mind. And another place, a parallel to this in, in Mark and Luke, it mentions, like, might as well. Now, I, I'm not trying to say that, you know, worship captures everything that it means to love him. But I definitely think that it's part of what it means to love him. It captures, in a sense, uh, the beginnings of what it means to love him. To grow in love for him is to continue to worship him and to continue to recognize who he is and recognize what he's done and respond to that. And so we recognize, you know, his majesty, his power, his holiness, his justice. We also recognize his mercy, his grace, his patience for us, his love. And when we look at those things and then we look at what he's done, start adding things up and you go, okay, look, he has created the world. He's created me. He has purpose for my life. He, he has come in the flesh and he's taken on flesh and he lived a sinless life and he died on a cross for me and then he rose from the grave and now he invites me into his family and this opportunity to know him personally and to be with him forever. Like, not only that, but he has preserved that good news for me in the Bible and through the church over the years and now I can be a part of it. Like, who he is and what he's done, absolutely brings me to worship. I ought to respond to that by, by responding to this, these things that I recognize. And the only response that really is right or makes sense to recognizing all the things that he's done is to worship. And so we begin to see how, uh, begin to see and, be, and begin to feel how great his love is for us. It's, it's then that we begin to love him in return. I think it's that, that recognition of all the things that he is and all the things that he has done kind of like the, the gratitude for that, that sense of like growing, the growing sense of recognition of his love for us is what makes us love him. You know, John in 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If I'm going to love him, it's because I have recognized his love for me and I'm responding to that. And I hope you know tonight that he does love you. I hope you know 
uh, or, or recognize that he has invited you into his family, into a relationship with him. And not only is he worthy of our worship just based on who he is, but also based on what he's done to draw us to himself. And I don't know about you, but I want to love him more and more and more because I continue to see more and more and more of how much he loves me, how much he cares for me. And with everything I do, I want to communicate that. With everything that I do in my whole life, I want to communicate my appreciation for both who he is and what he's done for me. An appreciation and a gratitude for his goodness and his mercy toward me, not to mention the fact that every, every good thing that I have is from his hand. So man, I want to live, I want to live out of that. I want, to, I want to recognize these things and worship him with my life. I want to glorify God with my life. But not only that, we also want to point us to him, right? So he says, you know, in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us, but there's also some verses that follow that verse that I think connect to what we're talking about as well. So when he says we love because he first loved us, John then goes on and says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, John was there. John was one of the disciples. He was there when Jesus said the things that he said. You know, when Jesus is making this connection between loving God and loving neighbor, saying, hey, this is the first and greatest commandment. Here's the second one like it. He was there. So when he says this, he's coming with a lot of good knowledge here of like a recognition of what is core to who we are as believers. And he's saying, look, if you don't love people, how can you say you love God? You know, you can't really love God and not care about what he loves. And I don't know if you realize this or not, because there's probably some people around in your life that you're like, "Mm, don't really want to love them. That's, yeah, going to have a hard time with that one. Um, you may have people that are hard for you to forgive. You may have people that just annoy you, and you're just like, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to have a hard time being compassionate, hard time caring about that person. Uh, it may be, you know, all kinds of people in your head that come to your mind or like, uh, you know, whatever. But it's like you can't really love God. You can't say that you love God and then turn around and hate a person that he loves. You know, there's a, some verses in 1 Timothy 2 that I want us to see. To that, that show us that, man, God loves every single person because every single person is made in his image, and he doesn't want any single one of them to be separated from him. So 1 John, or 1 Timothy 2 says this, This is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Like This communicates really clearly that God desires that all people be saved. He desires that all people be saved and that they would be with him, that they would know his love, and they'd respond to it with love and worship him with their lives. That's what he wants, right? And not only does he desire that, but he made it possible by coming himself, taking on flesh in Christ Jesus to be the ransom for all. That's how much he cares about every single individual that you interact with. There's not a single person that you interact with in the day-to-day that God does not love the same way that he loves you. And man, if you're, if you're gonna say, look, I, I recognize these things about God and I, I wanna turn around and worship him in my life, but you look at the people around you and you're like, mm, no, I'm good. I, just, I would rather do me and Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm good with God and all that stuff, but I can't, I can't deal with all these people. I can't deal with church. I can't deal with these people in the church. Like, I think, I think you're not understanding that you can't really love God 
without also having that overflow into love for other people. And then if you choose deliberately not to love other people, what you're really doing is saying, I am choosing not to love God the way that he has called me to love him. Because for me to love him is to obey him, right, with my life, to respond to all the things that I've seen and that I know is true about him. And if I know that he loves all these people, but my response is, I will not love those people, then I'm not loving him. And that's a tough word for us, right? And originally when I was thinking about how to summarize our Christian purpose, you know, that thing where I said glorify God and point others to him, originally I was thinking like glorify God and do good to others. Glorify God, do good to others. Because, you know, that, that makes sense. If I'm loving other people, I want to do good for them. I want to do good to them. I want good for them. But then I, as I was thinking about it, I was like, man, that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of vague, right? And then I started to consider, like, what is the best good that I could do for somebody? The the greatest good thing that I could possibly do for somebody, like, what is it that people need? They have obvious physical needs, you know, they have emotional needs, they have relational needs, all that stuff. Like, yeah, we we have needs for things that maybe I could try to meet, but what is the ultimate need, the greatest need that every person has? And I came to the place where I'm like, well, if I were to really do the best good that I can to somebody or for somebody, it would be to point them to him because that's what they need most. The way that I recognize and respond to God is what they need. The way that I enjoy God in my relationship with him is what they need. I want that for them because I have come to experience how good it is. And that's why I settled in on this, like glorify God and point others to him. It doesn't mean that I'm ruling out doing good to other people, like physical good. I think that's also included. Like to love your neighbor, you know, even James says, uh, you know, if you Tell your neighbor that, you know, oh, go be good and well, but you don't provide for their physical needs. Have you really loved them? Okay, so I'm not, I'm not ruling out like we should do good things for other people. But I think in the doing good, we are to point people to him. You know, Jesus said this uh, later in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, he had this to say in verses 34 through, through 40. Um, kind of a long section, but we're going to read it together. It's not First Timothy 2, by the way. It's Matthew chapter 25. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When do we see you a stranger, welcome you, naked, clothe you, sick in prison and visit you? The king will answer to him, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Further proving the point, like, by serving those in need, it is like you are serving Christ. Like, when you do good to others, Jesus is saying it's like, like you are doing good to me because that is his heart, that he wants to care for people, and he might want to care for people through you. And then you go to a place like Philippians 2, 3 through 4, where uh, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you can see like in the word of God, the Spirit's weaving some things together and showing, hey, we are meant to not only look after ourselves, but also other people and even look to them first for what they need because that is what it means to love God. And not just, it's not just loving people, but by loving the people that are around me, I am loving and worshiping God. It is a one way that I express my love and I, my worship to him. And I love because he first loved me. You know, in that growing sense of, of God's love for me, as it grows in, in my heart and my mind and my recognition of it, it'll eventually start to overflow. 
we become, it's, it's a crazy thing, but like we become satisfied in Christ the more that we come to know him. Like the more that you grow in your relationship with him, the more satisfied you become in him so that you don't recognize as much need in yourself anymore. Now, I think we do this thing naturally in relationships where we look at it as like a, uh, an exchange. Like, I do this for them, they do this for me. You know, I, I am involved in the relationship in this kind of way, and they bring something in return. We think of it in an exchange like that, and we even do it with organizations and schools and churches. We're like, what do I get out of these things? Because we sense needs in ourselves that we want satisfied. And we, we look for that satisfaction in these other things, and we come up unsatisfied all the time, and, and it, we see these things as exchange. But listen, when we become satisfied in Christ, when we know that we have everything that we need in him, we no longer need it from other people. We no longer need it from the other organizations. We no, no longer need it from whatever else. When we are satisfied, then we finally can actually serve other people without expecting something back. Because if we're honest, we do a lot of the good things that we do for reputation or other people to notice or to get something back in return. Like if I do this good thing, then other people will, you know, I'll get this kind of back out of it. But listen, when you know Christ and you know how much you are loved by him, you know who you are in him and you recognize his comfort and his peace and his joy in your life, despite the circumstances that are going on in your life, you don't need things from the relationships that you have. Rather, you can give things to the relationships that you have so that he satisfies you and you're able to pour out to others. How many of you guys know uh, who John Piper is? Okay, show of hands. Uh, how many of you don't know who John Piper is? It's okay. Totally cool. Listen, John Piper, he's a brilliant man, kind of old now, but still pastoring. And as far as I know, still writing books, who knows. But he wrote this book called Desiring God. And in Desiring God, he kind of makes this claim that it's not just his. It's, it's something that has kind of been believed by believers for a long time. And he makes this claim, okay, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then he takes it to another level. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Like the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then also, by the way, the more you enjoy him, the more you're satisfied in him, the more he's glorified in you. And then you could see how it would be like a cyclical thing. You know, like I... I'm more enjoy it, he's more glorified. And I more enjoy it, he's more glorified. And, and this, yeah, absolutely, I'm on board for that. That the purpose of our forever, the chief end of us forever, yes, absolutely, is we're gonna be with God and glorify him forever. But listen, as I grow more and more satisfied in him with my relationship with him right now, as a human being that is still right here on this earth that is broken with sinful people and people who need Jesus and other people who need to grow in their faith, in their relationship with Jesus, and I'm around all those people, the more I am satisfied in him, my only purpose isn't just to enjoy God, but rather to enjoy him so much that I then serve other people and want other people to know that enjoyment. Because yes, absolutely, when we're with him forever, we're gonna enjoy him forever. And that purpose will never end. But in this time being, it is a, a significant part of our purpose to love with the other people around us. And so we wanna, we wanna, Pour this out, right? We want to be so satisfied in him that, that we'd want that for somebody else. And for us here in this room, it might be time for like a reality check. Like if I don't love these other people around me, if I don't really care whether or not they know God or whether they feel like they're known by God, if I don't really care about that, then do I really care about God? 
have I really grown to know what satisfaction in him is like? And maybe we need to begin with repentance for finding cheap satisfaction in things of the world when full satisfaction can only be found in him. Maybe we need to lean more into his love for us and enjoy this relationship with him more, prioritize it so that we enjoy it and so that this sense of love for him grows to the point that overflows out of us into the lives of people around us. Maybe that starts with just recognizing more of who he is and what he's done and thinking on those things more so that we can respond to it. The point of this message is not to guilt trip you into loving Jesus more or doing better. This isn't like do more good stuff for people. That's not the point of this message. The reason that we're talking about this is because I think we have a tendency as Christians just to lose sight of what we're about as Christians. It does become like the list of things that we're supposed to do. It does become the list of things that we're not supposed to do. It does become, oh, I gotta read my Bible more. I gotta pray more. I gotta do this more. Instead of enjoying our relationship with God and growing our love for him, recognizing what he's done for us and responding to that by loving other people and loving him. Like, I want us to know what our purpose is. To not have to try to figure out our purpose as if it were tied to a specific vocational calling or a, a career. You know, I think we wonder sometimes what specifically God wants us to do with the life he's given us or the relationships he's given us or the talents that he's given us. We want to know what he wants us to do. But until we catch like a specific vision for what he wants us to do, we just kind of sit on our hands and act like we don't actually know what to do. When in reality, he's told us what to do. You know your purpose. It's right here. What am I supposed to do? Love God, love others. How do I do that? You know, I'm glorifying God. I'm pointing others to him. I'm living my life recognizing and responding to who he is and what he's done. I'm enjoying being loved by him so much that I I want it for other people and then I act accordingly. So that everything that I do in my life, no matter what it is in front of us, the school, the homework, the work, the future that you're looking ahead to, the decisions that you have to make, in every single one of those things, in every single instance, your purpose is glorify God and point others to him because you love God and you love them. And here's what this does for me. It gives me purpose behind those things that would otherwise just feel like a chore. You know, you know what those things are like, right? Outside of willfully sinful actions that you do, just about every moment of your life is an opportunity to glorify God. You can't glorify God in sin, but every other responsibility that you have, everything that, that feels like just a chore, that little bit of homework, that essay, that, that conversation you got to have, that meeting, that whatever, it's like, oh, these are just like obligations that I have. When I know what my purpose is, I am now free from the sense of obligation. Not that I'm not obligated to those things. I still must do the things that I'm obligated to do. But I no longer see them as an obligation. I see them as an opportunity to glorify God and point others to him. You may be like, how do I do that in an essay? You have every opportunity with your attitude and the effort that you put forward to honor God by the way that you write an essay. Listen, it does more than just free me from the sense of duty. You know, I no longer do things just because I have to. I begin to think like, how can this be done in a way that honors Jesus? How can this be done in a way that makes a positive impact on somebody, anybody else, even on myself? And then it also frees me from the constant self-evaluation that I'm prone to. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but self-evaluation is something that I 
I do. I overanalyze myself all the time. Overanalyze things that I've done, things that I've said, the relationships that I have, conversations I have. You know, I'll sit at the end of the day sometimes and just think back on something, some random instance that I didn't think about the rest of the day. Nothing, you know, no thought whatsoever of that one instance the whole day. And then I get to the end of the day, I'm like, oh, like, why did I do that? Start asking that question of like, oh, man, what do they think of me when I said that? Or what do they think of me when I said that? Or how did I come across? Did I have this look on my face that I shouldn't have had? Like, you know, how do I, how do I look to these people? Were they impressed with me? Were they let down by me? Were they disappointed by me? Did I, did I not do what I was supposed to do? Did I do everything that I was supposed to do? Listen, when I know what my purpose is and it has nothing to do with me, my purpose is to glorify God and, and point other people to him, it can free me from that. Where I'm no longer looking back and going, you know, concerned over what I looked like. How did, did I impress? And instead be thinking, if I left an impression at all, I hope it was a good impression for Jesus with everything that I did and everything that I said. And when I approach the things tomorrow, I don't have to be thinking, you know, what is my duty? What is my obligation in this? What do people expect of me? But rather, what can I do for the Lord? How can I honor him with this? This thing that I'm not really looking forward to, this conversation that I'm going to have to have, these random people that are now talking to me that I didn't expect to talk to me in my day, but I'm stuck here talking to them. Like, instead of thinking, how can I get out of this? Or how can I, you know, like, you know, how can I look impressive in this moment? Rather, how can I honor God in this? And how can I benefit them in some way? And hopefully in a way that points them to Jesus. It changes the way we look at things. It also frees me from laziness because there's always a reason to get up and go and do and be and relate to people. It also frees me from indecision. If you haven't suffered with this yet, you probably will. There's going to come a time we have to make a decision and you're not going to know what to do. Some of you are there because you're seniors and you're looking out and you're going like, what am I supposed to do next? What job am I supposed to have? What, am I, what are the next steps? What next schooling am I supposed to go do. And initially, for all of us, the natural thing is going to be, what is best for me? What makes the most sense? And we're thinking about it in terms of us. But here's the thing. If we know our purpose is, in whatever it is that we're going to do, I just want to glorify God. I want to point out people to him. If you know that's what it is, it takes the pressure off of the decision because you can do that anywhere you go and in anything you do and any job you have and any schooling that you have, any relationships you enter into. You can do that there. Instead, stop, you know, stop overanalyzing the decision and, and beating yourself up over not being able to make the decision and rather begin to look at whatever your options are, whatever's in front of you. It doesn't matter if you're a senior or whatever. Like, whatever decisions you're making and consider, how can these things put me in the best position to honor the Lord and influence others for him? Because that begins to be the rubric by which you judge your options. It changes the choices that you make. If your choices, you know, are out there in front of you and you're going, hey, how can I best honor the Lord in this, in this option, in this option? How can I best influence others people for Christ in this and this? No longer are you worried about the decision itself, but your concern is how can I fulfill the purpose that God has given me, whichever decision I make? And it makes the decision so much different. And then you just go live in faith. And I promise you there's no risk of you making a choice in faith only to have God go, mm, wish they hadn't done that. Can't, can't work with that one, you know? God's not ever doing that. If you're making a decision in faith and you're living out the purpose that he has given you, he's not looking down going, oh, what am I gonna do with him now? He's like, all right, let's fulfill this purpose that I've given you in the thing that you're walking into. Please know this. 
You are so loved by God. And through Jesus, you are welcomed into a relationship with him, the God who made you. And if that is true, and we recognize, man, he is so worthy of our worship, not only because of who he is, but what he's done for me. If we recognize he's so worthy of our worship, then how can, how can I not want to honor him with everything that I'm doing, with every decision that I make, everything that I'm about to go do? And then just as much as he loves me and that is overflowing in my life, how can we not look around and go, how can I help other people to see this? How can I help other people to enjoy this, to know this truth that I know? Even if you're not at the place where you feel like you're overflowing right now, because I promise you, or I promise myself, honestly, you may know where you're at, I don't know where you're at. I know that there's a very small percentage of you in here that feel like you're overflowing right now. The majority of you feel like you're like, I got this much in the cup, man, I got nothing. I wish God would fill me up some more. Listen, God has blessed you beyond measure. Whatever, oper- whatever circumstances you're in, whatever things you're dealing with, I promise you has blessed you beyond measure and given you everything that you need to fulfill the purpose that he's given you. Ball means his love is so great that it can overflow even the emptiest cup. His love alone, not how good you respond to it, not how well you respond in faith, but rather just his love alone. He is able to fill you up so that you can pour out into other people. Don't believe the lie that your cup is almost empty because it is a lie. In Christ, you have everything that you need already. Recognize that. Recognize what he's done for you and respond to it And I I know that he will come alongside and help, help you to see and enjoy and really help you to live out the purpose that he has called you to.